Chapter 2 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life, Volume 1, by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Miss Catherine. Poor Mr. Rule rushed out into the night in a state of despair. It was a summer night, and the streets of Redborough were still full of the murmur of life and movement. He came down from the slope on which Mr. John Vernon's grand new house was situated, into the town, turning over everything that it was possible to do. Should he go to the old bank, the lifelong rival of Vernon's, and ask their help to pull through? Even such a humiliation he would have endured had there been any chance of success. Should he go to the agent of the Bank of England? He could not but feel that it was quite doubtful whether between them they could make up enough to meet the rush he expected. And were they likely to do it? Would not the first question be, where is Mr. Vernon? And where was Mr. Vernon? Perhaps gone to Bath, perhaps to France, his wife said. Why should he go to France without letting anyone at the bank know, saying he was only to be absent for a day? There was no telegraph in those days, and if he confided Mr. Vernon's story to the other banks, what would they think of him? They would say that Vernon was mad, or that he had gone away. There could be no doubt of what they would say. Rule was faithful to his old service and to the honour of the house which had trained him. He would say nothing about France or Bath. He would allow it to be understood that Mr. Vernon had gone to London to get the assistance necessary and would come back in a post-chaise before the offices were open in the morning. And perhaps, he said to himself, perhaps it was so. God grant it might be so. Very likely he had not thought it necessary to enter into the matter to a lady. Poor thing with her twenty pounds that showed how much she knew of business. But it was very high-minded and innocent of her to offer all she had. It showed there was at least no harm in her thoughts. It gave a momentary ease to the clerk's mind to think that perhaps this was what Mr. Vernon must mean. He must have known for some time how badly things were going, and who could tell that the sudden expedition of which he had made so little, only saying when he left the bank the day before, I shall not be here to-morrow, who could tell that it was not to get help to surmount the crisis that he had gone away? Rule turned towards his own house under the solace of this thought, feeling that anyhow it was better to get a night's rest, and be strong for whatever was to happen to-morrow. It would be a miserable to-morrow if Mr. Vernon did not bring help. Not only the bank that would go, but so many men with families that would be thrown upon the world. God help them, and that money which stood to his own credit, that balance of which two or three days before he had been so proud to see it standing in his name on those well-kept beautiful books. All this hanging upon the chance that Mr. Vernon might have gone to town to get money, no, he could not go in and sit down at the peaceful table where Mrs. Rule perhaps would be hemming a cambric ruffle for his shirt, or plaiting it delicately with her own fingers, a thing no laundress could do to please her, and the children learning their lessons. He felt sure that he could not rest. He would only make her anxious. And why should she be made anxious as long as he could keep it from her? It is difficult to say how it was that the first suggestion of a new possibility took hold of Mr. Rule's mind. He turned away when he was within a stone's throw of his own house, saying to himself that he could not go in, that it was impossible, and walked in the opposite direction where he had not gone far until he came in sight of the bank, 
that centre of so many years hard work that pride of redborough and of everybody connected with it vernon's to think that ruin should be possible that so dark a shadow could hover over that sacred place what would old mr vernon have said he who received it from his father and handed it down always flourishing always prosperous to not to his son if his son had lived the eldest one not he who had gone wrong but the eldest who was john too called after his grandfather he who was the father of it was at this point that mr rule came to a dead stop and then after a pause wheeled right round and without saying another word to himself walked straight up wilton street which as everybody knows was quite out of his way the father of blank yes indeed indeed and that was true the recollection which called forth this fervour of affirmation was a pleasant one all the youth of redborough at one time had been in love with catherine vernon the bank clerks to a man adored her when she used to come and go with her grandfather and she did so constantly bringing him down in the morning in her pony carriage calling for him in the afternoon running in in the middle of the day to see that the old gentleman had taken his biscuits and his wine she walked over their hearts as she crossed the outer office but so lightly so smoothly that the hearts were only thrilled not crushed by her footfall so firm and swift but so airy as it was she knew them all in the office and would give her hand to the head clerk and send a friendly glance all round unaware of the harm she was doing to the hapless young men but after all it was not harm it was a generous love they felt for her like the love of chivalry for a lady unapproachable that young princess was not for them none of them grew mad with foolish hopes but they thought of her as they never thought of any one else mr rule was at the end of wilton street just where it meanders out towards the edge of the common before he took breath and began to ask himself what miss vernon could do for him was not one lady enough to appeal to she whom he had already seen had nothing for him no help no advice not a suggestion even and yet she was more closely connected with the bank than catherine vernon who had disappeared from all visible connection with it at her grandfather's death notwithstanding that a great deal of her money was in it and that she had in fact a right to be consulted as a partner so it had been settled it was said by the old man in his will but she had never so far as anybody knew taken up this privilege she had never come to the bank never given a sign of having any active interest in it what then could she be expected to do what could she do even if she wished to help them mr rule was aware that there was no very cordial feeling between her cousin's house and hers they were friends perfectly good friends but they were not cordial while he turned over these thoughts in his mind however he walked on steadily and quickly without the least hesitation in his step there was even a sort of exhilarated excitement in him a sentiment quite different from that with which he had been disconsolately straying about and painfully turning over possibilities or rather impossibilities perhaps it was a half romantic pleasure in the idea of speaking to miss vernon again but really there was something besides that a sense of satisfaction in finding a new and capable mind to consult with at least if no more miss vernon lived in the house which her grandfather had lived in and his father before him 
To reach it, you had to make your way through the delta of little streets into which Wilton Street ran, and across a corner of the common. The Grange was an old house with dark red gables appearing out of the midst of a clump of trees. In winter, you saw the whole mass of it, chiefly old bricks, though these were thrown up and made picturesque by the fact that the oldest part of it was in grey stone. Broad, large, Elizabethan windows glimmered, lighted up through the thick foliage this evening, for by this time the summer night was beginning to get dark, and a good deal too late for a visit. Mr. Rule thought as he knocked at the door that it was very likely she would not see him, but this was not the case. When he sent in his name as the head clerk at the bank, he was received immediately, and shown into the room with the Elizabethan windows where she was sitting. By this time she was of mature years, and naturally much changed from the young girl he had known. He had been one of the young clerks in the outer office, whom she would recognize with a friendly, smiling look, and a nod of her head all round. Now, however, Miss Vernon came up to him and held out her hand to Mr. Rule. "'You need not have sent me word who you were,' she said with a smile. "'I knew quite well who you were. I never forget faces nor names. You have not come to me at this time of night on a mere visit of civility. Don't be afraid to tell me at once whatever there may be to say.' "'From the way you speak, ma'am,' said Mr. Rule, I conclude that you have heard some of the wicked reports that are flying about. That is exactly what I want to know, she said, with all her old vivacity. Are they wicked reports? A report is always wicked, said Mr. Rule sententiously, which is likely to bring about the evil it imagines. Ah, she cried, then it is no further gone than that, and yet it is as far gone as that, she added, looking anxiously in his face. "'Miss Vernon,' said Rule solemnly, "'I expect to run upon the bank to-morrow.' "'Good God!' she said, clasping her hands, "'which was not a profane exclamation, "'but the kind of half-conscious appeal "'which nature makes instinctively. "'But you have made all preparations? "'Surely you can meet that.' "'He shook his head solemnly. "'The credit of the bank was so much to him "'that when thus face to face with the event he dreaded, Poor Rule could not articulate anything, and the water stood in his eyes. Good God, she said again, but her face was not awe-stricken. It was that of a soldier springing instantly to the alert, rallying all his resources at the first word of danger. But you don't mean to say that my cousin, does not John know this? They say everybody knows these things before the person concerned. Why, why did you not warn him, Mr. Rule? Rule shook his head. It isn't possible that he could have been ignorant. How could he have been ignorant, ma'am? God knows I have not a word to say against Mr. Vernon, but to think he should forsake us in our moment of trial. Forsake you? A sudden flush flew over Miss Vernon's face, a spark shot out of her eyes. Indignation and yet doubt was in her face. That is not possible, she cried, holding her head high. And then she said anxiously, Mr. Rule, tell me what you mean. I dare say it is the falsity of appearances, said poor Rule. I am sure I hope so. I hope Mr. Vernon has gone away to get help, personally. You can do that so much better than writing, and that he may be back in time for tomorrow. Has he gone away? she said in a low tone. Unfortunately, Miss Vernon, I can't help saying unfortunately, for it paralyzes everybody else. We can do nothing at the bank. 
but I cling to the hope that he will be back before the bank is opened. Oh, yes, I cling to the hope. Without that, everything will be lost. Everything, cried he, who was so proud of being the head clerk at Vernon's with tears in his eyes. And then there was a pause. For a minute or two, not a word was said. The daughter of the house was as much overcome by the thought as was its faithful servant. At last she said faintly, but firmly, Mr. Rule, I cannot believe but that you will see John tomorrow when the bank is opened, with means to meet every demand. Yes, Miss Vernon, that is my conviction, too. But in what a faltering voice was this conviction stated? The room was not very light, and they did not distinguish very clearly each other's faces. But in case of any failure, she said, for of course one never can tell, the most tiresome nothings may detain you just when speed is most important, or he might not have succeeded as he hoped. In case of any delay, I shall be there, Mr. Rule. You may calculate upon me, with every penny I can muster. You, Miss Vernon, the clerk said with a cry of relief and joy. Certainly, who else, when the credit of the bank is at stake? I have been living very quietly, you know. I spend next to nothing. My mother's money has accumulated till it has quite a little fortune, I believe. What had I best do? Send to Mr. Sullen and ask him to help us on that security? I don't think he will refuse. If you do that, we are saved, said Rule, half crying. That is the thing to do. What a head for business you have. She smiled and gave him a little nod, like one of those happy nods she used to give to the young clerks in her fine youthful days, in which there was a kind acknowledgment of their admiration, a friendly good fellowship with themselves. I hope I am not old Edward Vernon's granddaughter for nothing, she said, beginning to walk up and down the room with a buoyant impatience, as though longing for the moment of exertion to come. I had better write to Mr. Sullen at once. There is no time to lose. And if you will let me, I will take the note directly and bring you an answer. Bravo! That is promptitude, cried Miss Vernon, and she went up to him and held out her hand. Between us, we will keep the old place going, she said. Whoever may give in. If Mr. Rule had not been the steady, bashful Englishman he was, he would have kissed that hand. He felt that there was in it enough to save everything the bank first, and then his own little bit of money, and his situation, and his children's bread. He had not allowed himself to think of these things in the greatness of his anxiety and respect to Vernon's, but he did think of them now, and was ready to cry in the relief of his soul. Never was an evening more full of occupation. Mr. Sullen, who was the agent of the Bank of England in Redborough, was fortunately at home, and responded at once to Miss Vernon's appeal. Mr. Rule had the gratification of walking back with him to the Grange, whither he hastened to reply in person, and of assisting at the interview afterwards with a sense of pride and personal advancement which heightened the satisfaction of his soul. Miss Vernon insisted strongly on the point that all these preparations were by way of precaution merely. My cousin will no doubt be back in time, fully provided, but of course you never can be perfectly certain— Horses may break down, shafts be broken, the least little accident may spoil everything. Of course John put off such a step till the last moment, and thought it better to keep it entirely to himself. Of course, cried Rule, speaking out of his corner, and, of course, 
but much more faintly, Mr. Selland said. That is so evident that it requires no repetition, but just as naturally Mr. Rule was alarmed and had the good sense to come to me. All this was by way of convincing Mr. Selwyn that the whole matter was perfectly simple and that probably his resources would not be called upon at all. To be sure, as in every case of a similar kind, Miss Vernon might have saved herself the trouble, the circumstances being far more clearly known to Mr. Selwyn than to herself. He was very sure that John Vernon would not return, and that his intention was to get himself out of it. Everybody had known it was coming. It was just as well to humour a lady, and accept her version as the right one, but he was not for a moment deceived. "'Of course the bank,' he said, "'will make it up to you afterwards.' "'Of course,' she said, "'and if not, I don't know who is to stop me "'from doing what I like with my own.' He asked a few questions further, in which there was a good deal of significance, as, for instance, something about Mrs. John Vernon's marriage settlements, which neither of the others for the moment understood. Rule saw Mr. Selwyn to the door, by Miss Vernon's request, with great pride, and went back to her afterwards, as if he were one of the family, he described to his wife afterwards. Well, she said, are you satisfied? Oh, more than satisfied, happier than I can tell you, cried the clerk. The bank is saved. And then she, so triumphant, buoyant, inspired as she was, sank down upon a chair and put her head in her hands, and he thought, cried. But Rule was not a man to spy upon a lady in the revulsion of her feelings. When she looked up again, she said to him quickly, In any case, Mr. Rule, we are both sure that my cousin is doing all he can for the bank. If he succeeds or not, it is in other hands. Oh, yes, Miss Vernon, quite sure, Rule replied promptly. He understood that she meant it to be understood so, and determined within himself that he was ready to go to the stake for the new dogma and then he related to her his interview with Mrs. John, and her willingness to give him up her twenty pounds to save the bank. Miss Vernon's first flush of indignation soon yielded to amusement and sympathy. She laughed, and she cried. That shall always be remembered to her credit, she said. I did not think she had any feeling for the bank. Let us always remember it to her credit. She was ready to give all she had, and who can do any more? Mr. Rule was somewhat intoxicated with all these confidences, and with the way in which Miss Vernon said, we. His head was a little turned by it. She was a woman who understood what it was to have a faithful servant. No doubt, after the sacrifice she was making, she would, in future, have more to do with the business, and Rule could scarcely keep his imagination from straying into a consideration of changes that might be. Instead of merely being head clerk, it was quite possible that a manager might be required. But he pulled himself up, and would not allow his thoughts to carry him so far. Next day, everything happened as had been foreseen. There was a run on the bank, and a moment of great excitement. But when Miss Vernon was seen at the door of the inner office, smiling, with her smile of triumphant energy and capability upon the crowd, and when the Bank of England porters appeared bringing in those heavy boxes, the run and all the excitement subsided as by magic. The bank was saved, but not by John Vernon. The outside world never was aware how the matter was settled, but John did not come back. He would have met nothing but averted looks and biting words, for there could be no doubt that he had abandoned his post and left Vernon's to its fate. 
Messrs. Pounce and Sealing had a good deal to do about the matter, and new deeds were drawn, and old deeds cancelled to a serious extent. But the bank ever after remained in the hands of Miss Vernon, who, it turned out, had more than her grandfather's steady power of holding on, and was indeed the heir of her great-grandfather's genius for business. The bank throve in her hands as it had done in his days, and everything it touched prospered. She deserved it, to be sure, but everybody who deserves does not get this fine reward. There is something beyond which we call good luck or good fortune or the favor of heaven, but as heaven does not favor all or even most of the best people in this way, we have to fall back upon a less pious phraseology. Is it perhaps genius for business, as distinct as genius in poetry, which makes everything succeed? But this is more than any man can be expected to understand. Rule attained all the heights of those hopes which had vaguely dawned on him out of the mist on that July evening, when his good angel suggested to him Catherine Vernon's name. He was raised to the dignity of manager, as he had foreseen. His salary was doubled, his sons were provided for, and he grew old in such comfort and general esteem as he had never dreamed of. This is the man that saved the bank, Miss Vernon would say, and though, of course, he deprecated such high praise and declared that he was nothing but the humblest instrument, yet there can be no doubt that he came to believe it in the end, as his wife and all his children did from the beginning. Miss Vernon's was a reign of great benevolence, of great liberality, but of great firmness, too. As she got older, she became almost the most important person in Redborough, People spoke of her, as they sometimes do of a very popular man, by her Christian name. Catherine Vernon did this and that, they said. Catherine Vernon was the first thought when anything was wanted, either by the poor who needed help, or the philanthropist who wanted to give it. The Vernon almshouses, which had been established a hundred years before, but which had fallen into great decay till she took them in hand, were always known as Catherine Vernon's almshouses. Her name was put to everything. Catherine Street, Catherine Square, Catherine Places without number. The people who built little houses on the outskirts exhausted their invention in varying the uses of it. Catherine Villas, Catherine Cottage, Catherine Mansion were on all sides, and when it occurred to the high church rector to dedicate the new church to St. Catherine of Alexandria, the common people, of one accord, transferred the invocation to their living patroness. She was, at least, a saint more easily within reach, and more certain to lend a favorable ear. End of chapter 2. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto.